Today, I'm talking to Luca Casanato. He's a member of the Dino core team and a TC39 delegate. Hey, thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about Dino, and on the website it says Dino is a runtime for JavaScript and TypeScript. So I thought we could start with defining what a runtime is. Yeah, that's a great question. I think th this question actually comes up a lot. It's it's like sometimes we also define Dino as a headless browser or I don't know a, a JavaScript script execution tool. What actually defines a runtime? I, I think what makes a runtime a runtime is that it is. A, it's implemented in native code. It cannot be self-hosted. Like you cannot self-host a JavaScript runtime. And it executes JavaScript or TypeScript or some other scripting language without relying on, well, yeah, I, I guess it's the self-hosting thing. Like it's it's essentially a, a JavaScript execution engine, which is not self-hosted. So yeah, it, it maybe has IO bindings, but it doesn't necessarily need to. Like it maybe allows you to read the, from the file system or, or make network calls, um, but it doesn't necessarily have to. It's I think the, the primary definition is something which can execute JavaScript without already being written in JavaScript. And when we hear about JavaScript runtimes, whether it's Dino or Node or Bun or anything else, we also hear about it in the context of V8. Mm -hmm. Could you explain the relationship between V8 and a JavaScript runtime? Yeah. So V8 and, and JavaScript Core and SpiderMonkey, these are all JavaScript engines. So these are the low-level virtual machines that can execute or that can parse your JavaScript code, turn it into bytecode, maybe turn it into compiled machine code, and then execute that code. But these engines do not implement any I.O. functions. They do not. They implement the JavaScript spec as is written. And then they provide extension hooks for, they call these host environments, um, like environments that embed these engines to provide custom functionalities to essentially poke out of the sandbox, out of the, out of the virtual machine. Um, and this is used in browsers, like browsers have, have these engines built in. This is where they originated from. Um, and then they poke holes into this um, sandbox, this virtual machine to do things like, I don't know, writing to the DOM or, or console logging or making fetch calls and all these kinds of things. And what a runtime essentially does, a JavaScript runtime, is it takes one of these engines and um, it then provides its own set of host APIs, like essentially its own set of holes it pokes into the sandbox. And depending on what the runtime is trying to do, um, the way it will do this is going to be different. And, and the sort of API that is ultimately exposed to the end user is going to be different. For example, if you compare Dino and Node, like Node is very loosey-goosey about how it pokes holes into the sandbox. It sort of just pokes them everywhere. And this makes it difficult to enforce things like runtime permissions, for example, whereas Dino is much more strict about how it um, pokes holes into its sandbox. Like everything is either a web API or it's behind in, the, in this Dino namespace, which means that it's it's really easy to find um, places where, where you're poking out of the sandbox. And really, you can also compare these to browsers. Like browsers are also JavaScript runtimes. Um, they are just not headless JavaScript runtimes, but JavaScript runtimes that also have a UI. And yeah, like there, there's there's a whole bunch of different kinds of JavaScript runtimes. And I think we're also seeing a lot more like embedded JavaScript runtimes. Like for example, if you've used React Native before, you you may be using Hermes as a um, JavaScript engine in your Android app, which is like a custom JavaScript engine written just for for, for React Native. Um, and this also is embedded within a like React Native runtime, which is specific to React Native. 
So it's also possible to have runtimes, for example, that are that can be where the, where the back backing engine can be exchanged, which is kind of cool. So it sounds like V8's role. One way to look at it is it can execute JavaScript code, but only pure functions. I suppose you can pretty much yeah do anything that doesn't interact with IO. So you think about browsers you were mentioning, you need to interact with the DOM, or if you're writing a server-side application, you probably need to receive or make HTTP requests, that sort of thing. And yep. all of that is not handled by V8. That has to be handled by an external runtime. Exactly. Like like one... one the, there's, there's like some exceptions to this. For example, JavaScript technically has some IO built in within its standard library, like math.random. It's like random number generation is technically an IO operation. So technically V8 has some IO built in, right? And like getting the current date from the user, that's also technically IO. So like there's, there's some very limited edge cases. It's, it's not that it's purely pure, but V8, for example, has a flag to turn it completely deterministic which means that it really is completely pure. And this is not something which runtimes usually have. This is something like the feature of an engine because the engine is like so low level that it can essentially, there's so little IO that it's very easy to make deterministic where a runtime higher level um, has, has IO uh, much more difficult to make deterministic. And for things like when you're working with JavaScript, there's uh, asynchronous programming Mm-hmm. And so you have concurrency and things like that. Is that a part of V8 or is that the responsibility of the runtime? That's a great question. So there's multiple parts to this. There's the part, um, there, there's JavaScript promises um, and sort of concurrent Java, or, well, yes, concurrent JavaScript execution, which is sort of handled by V8. Like V8, you can, in, in pure V8, you can create a promise and you can, execute some code within that promise, but without I.O., there's actually no way to defer time, uh, which means that in, with pure V8, you can either, you can create a promise which executes right now, or you can create a promise that never executes. But you can't create a promise that executes in 10 seconds because there's no way to measure 10 seconds asynchronously. What runtimes do is they add something called an event loop on top of this, um, on top of the base engine. And that event loop for example, like a very simple event loop, for example, might have a timer in it, which every second looks at if there's a timer scheduled to run within that second. And if it does, if, if that timer exists, it'll go call out to V8 and say, you can now execute that promise. But V8 is still the one that's keeping track of, of like which promises exist and the code that is meant to be invoked when they resolve, all that kind of thing. Um, but the underlying infrastructure that actually invokes which promises get resolved at what point in time, like the asynchronous, asynchronous IO is what this is called. This is driven by the event loop, um, which is implemented by a runtime. So Dino, for example, it uses Tokyo for its event loop. This is a, um, an event loop written in Rust. It's very popular in the Rust ecosystem. Um, Node uses libuv. This is a relatively popular runtime or event loop um, implementation for C. Uh, plus plus and uh, libuv was written for node tokyo was not written for dino but um yeah chrome has its own event loop implementation bun has its own event loop implementation so we we might go a little bit more into that later but i think what we should probably go into now is why make 
Dino because <laughs> you have Node that's uh, currently very popular. The co-creator of Dino, to my understanding, actually created Node. Mm-hmm. So maybe you could explain to our audience what was missing or what was wrong with Node where they decided I need to create a new runtime. Yeah. So the, the primary point of concern here was that Node was slowly diverging from browser standards with no real path to, to, to reconverging. Um, like there was nothing that was pushing Node in the direction of standards compliance and there was nothing that was like sort of forcing Node to innovate. And we really saw this because in the time between, I don't know, 2015, 2018, like Node was slowly working on ESM while browsers had already shipped ESM for like three years. Um, Node did not have fetch. Node hasn't, ha- or Node only got fetch last year, right? Six, seven years after browsers got fetch. Node's stream implementation is still very divergent from, from standard web streams. Node was very reliant on callbacks. It still is. Um, like Promises in many places of the Node API are an, are an afterthought, which makes sense because Node was created in a time before promises existed. Um, but there was really nothing that was pushing Node forward, right? Like nobody was actively investing in, in, in improving the API of Node to be more standards compliant. And so what we really needed was a new like Greenfield project, which could demonstrate that actually writing a new server-side runtime is A, viable, and B, is totally doable with an API that is more standards compliant. Like essentially you can write a browser, like a headless browser, and have that be an excellent to use JavaScript runtime, right? And then there were some things that were added on top of that, like uh, TypeScript support, because TypeScript was incredibly, or is still incredibly popular, even more so than it was four years ago when, when Dino was created or envisioned. Um, this permission system, like Node really poked holes into the V8 sandbox very early on with, with like, it's going to be very difficult for Node to ever, ever uh, reconcile this especially because the, some, some of the APIs that it, that it exposes are just so incredibly low level that like, I don't know, you can mutate random memory within your process, um, which like, if you want to have a, a secure sandbox, like that just doesn't work. Um, it's not compatible. So there was it really needed to be a place where you could explore this um, direction and, and see if it worked. And Dino was that. Dino is, still is that. And I think Dino has outgrown that now into something which is much more uh, usable as, as like a production-ready runtime. And many people do use it in production. And now Dino is on the path of uh, slowly converging back with Node um, in, from both directions. Like Node is slowly becoming more standards compliant. Um, and depending on who you ask, this was this was done because of Dino and some people said it would, had already been going on and Dino just accelerated it. But that's not really relevant because the point is that like Node is becoming more standards compliant. And, and the other direction is Dino is um, becoming more Node compliant. Like Dino is implementing Node compatibility layers that allow you to run code that was originally written for the Node ecosystem in a standards compliant runtime. So through those two directions, the, the runtimes are sort of... Um, going back towards each other. I don't think they'll ever merge, but we're, we're getting to a point here pretty soon, I think, where it doesn't really matter what runtime you write for um, because you'll be able to write code written for one runtime in 
the other runtime relatively easily. So if you're saying the two are becoming closer to one another, becoming closer to the web standard that runs in the browser, if you're talking to someone who's currently developing in Node, what's the incentive for them to switch to Dino versus mm -hmm. continue using Node and then hope that eventually they'll kind of meet in the middle? Yeah. So I think like Dino is a lot more than just a runtime, right? Like a runtime executes JavaScript. Dino executes JavaScript. It executes TypeScript. But Dino is so much more than that. Like Dino has a built-in formatter. It has a built-in linter. It has a built-in testing framework, a built-in benching framework. It has a built-in bundler. It, it like can create self-hosted um, executables. Yeah. Like bundle your code and the Dino executable into a single executable that you can ship off to someone. Um, it has a dependency analyzer. It has editor integrations. It has, yeah, like I could go on for hours <laughs> about all of the auxiliary tooling that's inside of Dino that's not a JavaScript runtime. And also Dino as a JavaScript runtime is just more standards compliant than any of the other server-side runtimes right now. So if, if you're really looking for something which is standards compliant, which is going to like live on forever, then... It's, you know, like you cannot kill off the Fetch API ever. The Fetch API is going to live forever because Chrome supports it. Um, and the same goes for local storage and, and like, I don't know, the Blob API and all these other web APIs. Like they, they have shipped in browsers, which means that they will be supported until the end of time. And yeah, maybe Node has also reached that with its API, probably to some extent. But yeah, don't underestimate the power of like 3 billion Chrome users that would scream immediately if the Fetch API stopped working, right? Yeah, I, I think maybe what it sounds like also is that because you're using the API that's used in the browser, places where you deploy JavaScript applications in the future, you would hope that those would all settle mm -hmm. on using that same API so that if you were using Dino, you could host it at different places and not worry about, do I need to use a special API, yeah. like maybe that you would in Node. Yeah, exactly. And this is actually something which we're specifically working towards. So I don't know if you've you've heard of WinterCG. It's a it's a community group at the W3C that um, Cloudflare and and Dino and some others, including Shopify, have uh, started last year. Um, where essentially we're trying to standardize the concept of what a server side JavaScript runtime is, and what APIs it needs to have available to be standards compliant, um, and essentially making this portability sort of written down somewhere and like write down exactly what code you can write and expect to be portable. And we can see like that all of the big, all of the big players that are involved in, in um, building JavaScript runtimes right now are, are actively engaged with us at WinterCG and are actively building towards this future. So I would expect that any code that you write today, which runs in Dino, runs in Cloudflare Workers, runs on Netlify Edge functions, runs on Vercel Edge runtime, runs on Shopify Oxygen, is going to run on the other four um, of, of those within the next couple of years here. Like I think the APIs of these is going to converge to be essentially the same. There's obviously going to always be some, some nuances, um, like, I don't know, Chrome and Firefox and Safari don't perfectly have the same API everywhere, right? Like Chrome has some web Bluetooth capabilities that Safari doesn't, or Firefox has some, I don't know, non-standard extensions to the error object, which none of the other runtimes do. But overall, you can expect these runtimes to mostly be aligned. Yeah, and I, I think that's, that's really 
really, really excellent. And that, that's, I think, really one of the reasons why one should really consider like building for, for this standard runtime, because it, it just guarantees that you'll be able to host this somewhere in five years time and 10 years time with, with very little effort. Like even if Dino goes under or Cloudflare goes under, or I don't know, nobody decides to maintain Node anymore, it'll be easy to, to run somewhere else. And also I expect that the big cloud vendors will ultimately um, provide managed offerings for, for the standards compliant JavaScript runtime as well. And this winter CG group, is Node a part of that as well? Um, yes, we've invited Node um, to join. Um, due to the complexities of how Node's internal decision-making system works, Node is not officially a member of Winter CG. Um, there is some individual members of the Node um, Technical Steering Committee which are participating. For example, um, James M. Snell is is the co-chair, is my co-chair on, on Winter CG. He also works at Cloudflare, but he's also a Node um, TSC member. Matteo Colina, who has been um, instrumental to getting Fetch landed in Node, um, is also actively involved. So Node is involved, but because Node is Node and, and Node's decision-making process works the way it does, Node is not officially listed anywhere as, as a member. But yeah, they're involved. And maybe they'll be a member at some point. But yeah, let's see. <laughs> yeah, and, and it, so it, it sounds like you're thinking that's more of a, a governance or a organizational aspect of Node than it is a, a technical limitation. Is that right? Yeah. I obviously can't speak for the Node Technical Steering Committee, but I know that there's a significant chunk of the Node Technical Steering Committee that is very favorable towards uh, standards compliance. But parts of the Node Technical Steering Committee are also not. They are either indifferent or are actively... I don't know if they're still actively working against this, but have actively worked against standards compliance in the past. And because the node governance structure is very, yeah, is, is so, so open and lets, um, and lets, lets all these voices be heard, um, that just means that decision-making processes within node can take so long. Like, this is also why the Fetch API took eight years to ship. Like, this was not a technical problem. And it is also not a, not a technical problem that node does not have URL pattern support or the file global or um, that the web crypto API was not on this on the global object until like late last year, right? Like these are not technical problems. These are decision-making problems. Um, and yeah, that was also part of the reason why we started Dino as, as like a separate thing because like, you can try to innovate Node from the inside, but innovating Node from the inside is very slow, very tedious, and requires a lot of fighting. And sometimes just showing somebody from the outside, like, look, this is the bright future you could have, makes them more inclined to do something. Do, do you have a sense for, you gave the example of Fetch taking eight years to, to get into Node. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you have a sense of what the typical objection is to, to something like that? Like, I understand there's a lot of people involved, but why would somebody say, I, I don't want this? In, yeah, so for, in the for Fetch specifically, there was, a, there was many different kinds of concerns. Um, one of the, I, I can maybe list two of them. One of them was, for example, that the Fetch API is not a good API, and as such, Node should not have it, which is sort of 
missing the point of because it's a standard API, how good or bad the API is, is much less relevant because if you can share the API, you can also share a wrapper that's written around the API, right? And then the other concern was Node doesn't need fetch because Node already has an HTTP API. Um, so, so these are both kind of examples of, of concerns that people had for a long time, which it took a long time to either convince these people or, or to push the change through anyway. And this is also the case for, for other things, like, for example, web crypto. Um, like, why do we need web crypto? We already have Node crypto. Or why do we need yet another streams implementation? Node already has four different streams implementations. Like, why do we need web streams? And the, the like, I don't know if you know this XKCD of there's 14 competing standards. So let's write a 15th standard to unify them all. And then at the end, we just have 15 competing standards. Um, so I think this is also the kind of concern that people were concerned about. But I, I think what we've seen here is that this is really not a concern that one needs to have because it ends up that, or it turns out in the end that if you implement web APIs, people will use web APIs and will use web APIs only for their new code. It takes a while, but we're seeing this with ESM versus require, like new code written with require, much less common than it was two years ago. And new code now using like XHR, whatever it's called, form request or you know, the one I mean, compared to using fetch, like nobody uses that anymore. Everybody uses fetch. Um, and like in node, if you write a little script, like you're going to use fetch, you're not going to use like nodes, HTTP.get API or whatever. We're going to see the same thing with readable stream. We're going to see the same thing with web crypto. We're going to see, see the same thing with blob. I think one of the big ones where, where node is still, I, I don't think this is one that's ever going to get solved is the, the buffer global in node. We have the uint8, this uint8 global um, in like all the runtimes, including browsers. Um, and buffer is like a superset of that, but it's in global scope. So it, it's sort of this non-standard extension of uint8 array that people in Node like to use, and it's not compatible with anything else. Um, but because it's so easy to get at, people use it anyway. So th those are those are also kind of problems that that we'll have to deal with eventually. And maybe that means that at some point the buffer global gets deprecated and I don't know, it probably can never get removed, but um, yeah, th these are kinds of conversations that the Node TSC is going to have to have internally in, I don't know, maybe five years. Yeah, so at a high level, what's shipped in the browser? It went through the ECMAScript approval process. People got it into the browser. Once it's in the browser, probably never going away. And because of that, it's safe to build on top of that for these, these server runtimes because it's never going away from the browser. And so everybody can kind of use it mm -hmm. into the future and not worry about it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's, and that's excluding the benefit that also, if you have code that you can write once and use in both the browser and the server side runtime, like that's really nice. Um, like that, that's the other benefit. Yeah. I think that's really powerful in that right now, when someone's looking at running something in Cloudflare workers versus running something in the browser versus running something in Node. It's, I think a lot of people make the assumption it's just JavaScript, so I can mm -hmm. use it as is, but it, it, there are at least currently differences in what APIs are available to you. Yep. Yep. Earlier you were talking about how Dino is more than just the runtime. It has a linter formatter 
file watcher. There's, there's all sorts of stuff in there. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit to the, the reasoning behind that versus mm -hmm. having them all be separate things. Yeah. So the, the reasoning here is essentially, if you look at other modern runtime or mo other modern languages, like Rust is a great example. Go is a great example. Even though Go was designed around the same time as Node, it has a lot of these same tools built in. And what it really shows is that if the ecosystem converges, like is essentially forced to converge on a single set of built-in tooling, A, that built-in tooling becomes really, really excellent because everybody's using it. And also it means that if you open any project written by any Go developer, any, any Rust developer, and you look at the tests, you immediately understand how the test framework works, and you immediately understand how the assertions work, um, and you immediately understand how the build system works, and you immediately understand how the dependency imports work, and you immediately understand, like, I want to run this project, and I want to restart it when my file changes. Like, you immediately know how to do that because it's the same everywhere. Um, and this kind of feeling of having to learn one tool and then being able to use all of the projects, like being able to con contribute to open source when you're moving jobs, whatever, like between personal projects that you haven't touched in two years, you know, like being able to learn this once and then use it everywhere, such an incredibly powerful tool. Like people don't appreciate this until they've used a runtime or, or, or language, which provides this to them. Like you can go to any Go developer and ask them if they would like, like, there's this there's this saying in the Go ecosystem um, that Go FMT is nobody's favorite, but oh uh, wait no I don't remember what the how the saying goes but the saying essentially implies that the way that Go FMT formats code maybe not everybody likes but everybody loves Go FMT anyway because it just makes everything look the same and like you can read your friend's code your co your colleague's code your new job's code the same way that you did your code from two years ago. And that's such an incredibly powerful feeling, especially if it's like well integrated into your IDE, you clone a repository, open that repository and like your testing panel on the left hand side just populates with all the tests and you can click on them and run them. And if an assertion fails, it's like the standard output format that you're already familiar with. And it's, it's, it's a really great feeling. And if you don't believe me, just go try it out and, and then you will believe me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm totally with you. I, I think it's interesting because with JavaScript in particular, it feels like the default in the community is the opposite, right? There's mm -hmm. so many different ways uh, or so many different build tools and testing frameworks and formatters. And it's very different than like you were mentioning a Go or a Rust that are more recent languages where they just include that all bundled in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you can see this as well in, in the time that an average JavaScript developer spends configuring their tooling compared to a Rust developer. Like if I write Rust, I write Rust like all day, every day. And I spend maybe mm, two, 3% of my time configuring Rust tooling, like doing dependency imports, opening a new project, creating a formatter config file. I don't know, deleting the build directory, stuff like that. Like that's that's essentially what it means for me to configure my Rust tooling. Whereas if you compare this to like a front-end JavaScript project, like you have to deal with making sure that your React version is compatible with your React DOM version, is compatible with your next version, is compatible with your Vite version, is compatible with your whatever version, right? This is, this is all not automatic. Making sure that you use the right 
like as as a front end developer, you don't have just npm installed. No, you have npm installed. You have yarn installed. You have pnpm installed. You probably have like bun installed and 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 I don't know. To use any of these, you need to have core pack enabled in Node, and like you need to have all of their global bin directories symlinked into your or, or, or uh, included in your path. And then if you install something and you want to update it, you don't know did I install it with Yarn? Did I install it with npm? Like this is a significant complexity, and you you tend to spend a lot of time dealing with dependencies and dealing with package management and dealing with like tooling configuration, setting up ESLint, setting up Prettier. And I, I think that, like, especially Prettier, for example, really showed it was one of the first things in the JavaScript ecosystem, which was like, no, we're not going to give you a config where you, that you can spend like six hours configuring. It's going to be like seven options, and here you go. And everybody used it because nobody likes configuring things, it turns out. Um, and even though there's always the people that say, oh, well, I won't use your tool unless... Like we, we get this all the time. Like I, I'm not going to use Dino FMT because I can't, I don't know, remove the semicolons or, or use single quotes or change my tab width to 16, right? Like wait until all of your coworkers are going to scream at you because you set the tab width to 16 and then see what they change it to. And then you'll see that it's actually the exact default that everybody uses. So it'll it'll take a couple more years, but I think we're also going to get there. Uh, like Node is starting to implement a, a test runner, and I, I think over time we're also going to converge on 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 like some standard build tools. Like I think Vite, for example, is a great example of this. Like doing a front end project nowadays, um, like building new front end tooling that's not built on Vite. Yeah, don't like Vite's 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 become the standard, and I think we're going to see that in a lot more places. Yeah, though I, I think it's it's tricky, right? Because you have so many people with their existing projects. You have people who are starting new projects and they're just searching the internet for what they should use. So you're you're gonna have people on Webpack, you're gonna have people on V. I guess now there's gonna be TurboPack, I think is another one that's coming. Mm -hmm. There's 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 all these different choices, right? And I, I think it's it's hard to to really settle on one, I guess, but yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I, I think this is this is, in my personal opinion, also a failure of the Node Technical Steering Committee for the longest time to not decide that yes, we're going to bless this as the standard formatter for Node, and this is the standard package manager for Node. And they did, they sort of did. Like, they, for example, Node blessed npm as the standard package manager for 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 Node, but. It didn't innovate on npm. Like no, the tech, no tech, technical steering committee did not force npm to innovate. Npm is a private company, ultimately bought by GitHub, and they had full control over how the no, npm CLI um, evolved. And nobody forced npm to to make sure that package install times are six times faster than they were three years ago. Like nobody did that, so it didn't happen. And I think this is this is really a failure of of the the. the yeah, the Node Technical Steering Committee and also the wider JavaScript ecosystem of not being persistent enough with with like focus on performance, focus on user experience, and and focus on simplicity. Like things got so out of hand, and I'm happy we're going in the right direction now. But yeah, it was terrible for some time. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about how we've been talking about 
Dino in the context of you just using Dino using its own standard library. But just recently, last year, you added a compatibility shim where people are able to use node libraries in Dino. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if you could talk to, like earlier you had mentioned that Dino has a different permissions model on the website. It mentions that Dino is standard HTTP server is two times faster than node in a hello world example. Yeah. And I'm wondering what kind of benefits people will still get from Dino if they choose to use packages from node. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so I think, again, this is sort of a, like, so just to clarify what we actually implemented, like what we have is we have support for you to import NPM packages. Um, so you can import any NPM package from NPM from your TypeScript or JavaScript ECMAScript module um, that you have you already have for your Dino code. Um, and we will under the hood make sure that is installed somewhere in some directory globally, like PNPM does. There's no local node modules folder you have to deal with. There's no package JSON you have to deal with. Um, and there's no uh, package JSON like versioning things you need to deal with. Like what you do is you do import Kausei from npm colon Kausei at one, and that will import Kausei with like the Semver tag one, um, and it'll like do the Semver resolution the same way Node does, or the same way npm does rather. And what you get from that is that essentially it gives you like this back door to a call out to all of the existing Node code that has been written, right? Like you cannot expect that Dino developers write like. I don't know. There was this time when Dino did not really have that many third-party modules yet. It was very early on. And I don't know. The, you either, If you wanted to connect to Postgres and there was no Postgres driver available, then the solution was to write your own Postgres driver. And that is obviously not great. Um, <laughs> so the better solution here is to let users for these packages where there's no Dino native or, or, or web native or standard native um, package for this yet that is importable with URL um, specifiers, you can import this from NPM. Uh, so it's sort of this like back door into the existing NPM ecosystem. And we explicitly, for example, don't allow you to create a package JSON file or import bare node specifiers because we don't we, we want to stay standards compliant here. Um, but to make this work effectively, we need to give you this little back door. Um, and inside of this back door, all hell is like, or like everything is terrible inside there, right? Like inside there, you can do bare specifiers and inside there you can like, uh, there's package JSONs and there's crazy node resolution and underscore underscore dir name and common JS and like all of that stuff is supported inside of this back door to make all the NPM packages work. But on the outside, it's exposed as this nice ESM-only NPM specifiers. And the, the reason you would want to use this over like, just using Node directly is because, again, like, you want to use TypeScript, no config, like necessary. You want to use, you want to have a formatter, you want to have a linter, you want to have tooling that like, does testing and benchmarking and compiling or whatever, all of that's built in. You want to run this on the edge, like close to your users and like, 30 different, 35 different uh, points of presence. Um, it's like, okay, push it to your Git repository, go to this website, click a button two times, and it's running in 35 data centers. Like this is this is a kind of ex- like developer experience that you can you do not get. You, I will argue that you cannot get with Node right now. Like even if you're using something like TS Node, 
it is not possible to get the same level of developer experience that you do with Dino. And the, the, the same like speed at which you can iterate, iterate on your projects, like create new projects, iterate on them is like incredibly fast in Dino. Like I can open a, a, a folder on my computer, create a single file, main.ts, put some code in there and then call Dino run main.ts. And that's it. Like I don't, I did not need to do npm install, and I did not need to do npm init dash y and remove the license and version fields and from from the generated package JSON and like set private to true and whatever else. Right? It just all works out of the box, and I think that's that's what a lot of people come to Dino for, and and then ultimately stay for. And also, yeah, standards compliance. So um, things you build in Dino now are going to work in five, ten years with no hassle. And so with this compatibility layer or this, this shim, is it where the node code is calling out to node APIs and you're replacing those with Dino compatible equivalents? Yeah, exactly. Like for example, we have a shim in place that shims out the node crypto API on top of the web crypto API. Like sort of some people may be familiar with this in the form of, um, browserify shims if anybody still remembers those it's essentially your front-end tooling you were able to import from like node crypto in your front-end projects and then behind the scenes your webpacks or your browserifies or whatever would take that import from node crypto and would replace it with like this shim that was essentially exposed the same API as node crypto but under the hood wasn't implemented with native calls but was implemented on top of web crypto or implemented in user land even and Dino does something similar. There's a couple edge cases of APIs that there's where where we do not expose the underlying thing that we shim to to end users outside of the node shim. So like there's some some APIs that I don't know if I have a good example. Like node next tick, for example. Um like to properly be able to shim node next tick, you need to like implement this within the event loop in the runtime. And you don't need this in Dino because in Dino you use the web standard Q micro task to, to do this kind of thing. But to be able to shim it correctly and run node applications correctly, we need to have this sort of like backdoor into some ugly APIs, um, which, which natively integrate in the runtime, but yeah, like allow, allow this node code to run. And anytime you're replacing a component with a, a shim, I think there's concerns about additional bugs or changes mm-hmm. in behavior that can be introduced? Is that something that you're seeing and, and how are you accounting for that? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. So this is actually a, a great concern that we have all the time. And it's not just even introducing bugs. Sometimes it's removing bugs. Like sometimes there's bugs in the Node standard library which are there and people are relying on these bugs to be there for the applications to function correctly. And we've seen this a lot. And then we implement this and we implement from scratch and we don't make that same bug and then the test fails or then the application fails. So what we do is um, we actually run Node's test suite against Dino's shim layer. So Node has a very extensive test suite for its own standard library and we can run this suite against, against our shims to find things like this. And there's still edge cases obviously which Node, like there was maybe there's a bug which Node was not even aware of existing. Um, where maybe this like it's is it's now standard. It's now like intended behavior because somebody relies on it, right? Like the second somebody relies on on some non-standard or some buggy behavior, it becomes intended. Um, but maybe there was no test that explicitly tests for this behavior. Um, so in that case, we'll add our own tests to to ensure that. But overall, we can already catch a lot of these 
by just testing against against nodes test. And then the other thing is we run a lot of real code. Like we'll try run Prisma and we'll try run Vite and we'll try run Next.js and we'll try run like, I don't know, a bunch of other things that people throw at us and check that they work. And if they work and there's no bugs, then we did our job well and our ships are implemented correctly. Um, and then there's obviously always the edge cases where somebody did something absolutely crazy that nobody thought possible. And then they'll open an issue on the Dino repo and we scratch our heads for three days and then we'll fix it. And then in the next release, there'll be a new bug that we added to make the compatibility with Node better. So yeah, but I, yeah, running tests is the, is the main thing, running Node's tests. Are there performance implications if someone is running an Express app or an XJS app and mm-hmm. Dino, will they get any benefits from the Dino runtime and performance? Yeah, it's actually there is performance implications and they're usually the opposite of what people think they are. Like usually when you think of performance implications, it's always a negative thing, right? It's always okay, it's like you it's like a compromise. Like the shim layer must be slower than the real node, right? It's not. Like we can run express faster than node can run express. And obviously not everything is faster in Dino than it is in Node, and not everything is faster in Node than it is in Dino. It's dependent on the API, dependent on on what each team decided to optimize. Um, and this also extends to other runtimes. Like you can always cherry pick results, like, I don't know, um, to, to make your runtime look faster in certain benchmarks. But overall, what really matters is that you do not, the first important step for, for good node compatibility is to make sure that if somebody runs your code or runs their node code in Dino or your other runtime or whatever, it performs at least the same. And then anything on top of that, great. Cherry on top, perfect. But make sure the baseline is, is at least the same. And I think, yeah, we have very few APIs where we behave, where we, where, where like there's a significant performance degradation in Dino compared to Node. Um, and like we're actively working on these things. Like Dino is not a, a, a project that's done, right? Like we have, I think at this point, like 15 or 16 or 17 engineers working on Dino spanning across all of our different projects. And like we have a whole team that's dedicated to performance um, and a whole team that's dedicated to node compatibility. So like these things get addressed and, and we make patch releases every week and a minor release every four weeks. So it's it's not a standstill. It's uh, constantly improving. Uh, something that kind of makes Dino stand out is its standard library. There's a lot more in there than there is in, in the Node one. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak to how you make decisions on what should go into it. Yeah, so early on it was easier. Early on the, the decision-making process was essentially, is this something that a top 100 or top 1000 NPM library implements. And if it is, let's include it. And the decision-making is still sort of based on that, but right now we've already implemented most of the low-hanging fruit. So things that we implement now are have have discussion around them, whether we should implement them. And we have a process where well, we have a whole team of engineers on our side, and we also have community members that that will review PRs and, and, and make comments and open issues and, and review those issues to sort of discuss the pros and cons of adding any certain new API. And sometimes it's also that somebody opens an issue that's like, I want, for example, I want an API to, to concatenate two unit array together, which is something 
you can really easily do node with buffer.concat, right? like the scary buffer thing. And there's no standards way of doing that right now. So we have to have a little utility function that does that. But in parallel, we're thinking about, okay, how do we propose an addition to the web standards now that makes it easy to concatenate unit iterates in the web standards, right? Yeah, there's a lot to it, um, but it's it's really um, it's all open. Like all of our all of our discussions for for additions to the standard library and things like that, it's all all st- uh, public on GitHub in the GitHub issues and GitHub discussions and GitHub PRs. Um, so yeah, that's that's where we do that. Yeah, because to give an example, I was a little surprised to see that there is support for Markdown front matter built into the standard library, mm-hmm. but. When you describe it as we look at the top 100,000 packages, are people looking at Markdown? Are they looking at Front Matter? I'm sure there's a fair amount that are. So that, that makes sense. Yeah. Like it, sometimes like that one specifically was driven by like our team was just building a lot of like little blog pages and things like that. And every time it was either you roll your own Front Matter parser or you look for one which has like a settle bug here and the other one has a settle bug there. And really not satisfactory with any of them. So we, we roll that into the standard library. We add good test coverage for it, good, add good documentation for it. And then it's like just a resource that people can rely on. Um, and you don't, you then don't have to make the choice of like, do I use this library to do my front matter parsing or the other library? No, you just use the one that's in the standard library. It's, it's also part of this like user experience thing, right? Like it's just a much nicer user experience not having to make a choice about stuff like that. Like completely inconsequential stuff. Like, which library do we use to do front matter parsing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think when when that stuff is not there, then I think the temptation is to go, okay, let me see what node modules there are that will let me parse the front matter, right? And yeah. then it, it sounds like probably, ideally, you want people to lean more on what's either in the standard library or what's native to the Dino ecosystem yeah yeah like the, the one of the big benefits is that the dino standard library is implemented on top of web standards right like it's it's implemented on top of these standard apis so for example there's node front matter libraries which do not run in the browser because the browser does not have the buffer global maybe it's a nice library to do front matter parsing with but like you choose it and then three days later you decide that actually this code also needs to run in the browser and then you need to go switch your front matter library. Um, so, so those are also kind of reasons why we may include something in the standard library. Like maybe there's even a really good module already to do something. Um, but if there's certain reliance on specific node features that um, we would like that library to also be compatible with, with, with web standards, we'll, uh, we might include it in the standard library. Like for example, YAML parser, um, or the YAML parser in the standard library is is a fork of uh, of the Node YAML module, and it's it's essentially that, but cleaned up and and made to use more standard APIs rather than um, Node built-ins. Yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of when you're writing a front-end application. Sometimes you'll use Node packages to do certain things, and they won't work unless you have a compatibility shim where the browser can make mm-hmm. use of certain node APIs. And if you use the APIs that are built into the browser already, then you won't, you won't need to deal with that sort of thing. Yeah. Also like less bundle size, right? Like if you don't have to shim that, that's less, less code you have to ship to the client. Another thing I've seen with Dino is it supports running WebAssembly 
mm-hmm. binaries. So you can export functions and call them from TypeScript. I was curious if you've seen practical uses of this in production within the context of Dino. Yeah, there's actually a bunch of, of really practical use cases. So probably the most executed bit of WebAssembly inside of Dino right now is actually ESBuild. Like ESBuild has a WebAssembly build. Like ESBuild is something that's written in Go. You have the choice of either running it um, natively in machine code as, as like an ELF process on, on Linux or on, on Windows or whatever, or you can use the WebAssembly build and then it runs in WebAssembly. And the WebAssembly build is maybe 50% slower than the uh, native build, but that is still significantly faster than Rollup or, 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 or I don't know, whatever else people use nowadays to do JavaScript bundling. I don't know. I, I just use the ESBuild always. Um, <laughs> so, um, for example, the Dino website is running on Dino Deploy, and Dino Deploy does not allow you to run sub-processes because it's, it's like this edge runtime, which uh, has certain security permissions that, it's, that are not granted, one of them being sub-processes. So it needs to execute ESBuild, and the way it executes ESBuild is by running them inside of WebAssembly. Um, because WebAssembly is secure. WebAssembly is, is something which is part of the JavaScript sandbox. It's inside the JavaScript sandbox. It doesn't poke any holes out. Um, so it's, it's able to run within, within like very strict security context. Um, and then other examples are, I don't know, you want to have a HTML sanitizer, which is actually built on the real HTML parser in a browser. We, we have an HTML sanitizer called Comrade or uh, Ammonia. I don't remember. There's there's an HTML sanitizer library on Dinoland slash X, which is built on the HTML parser from Firefox. Uh, which like ensures essentially that your HTML, like if you do HTML sanitization, you need to make sure your HTML parse is correct because if it's not, you might like your browser might parse some HTML one way and your sanitizer parses it another way and then it doesn't sanitize everything correctly. Um, so there's this, like the Firefox HTML parser compiled to WebAssembly. Um, you can use that to do HTML sanitization or the Dino documentation generation tool, for example, uh, Dino doc. There's a WebAssembly build for it that allows you to programmatically like generate documentation for, for your TypeScript modules. Um, yeah. And, and also like Dino FMT is available as a WebAssembly module for programmatic access and a bunch of other internal Dino programs as well, like, or, or, like components, not programs. What are some of the current limitations of WebAssembly and Dino? For, for example, from WebAssembly, can I make HTTP requests? Can I read files? That sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so WebAssembly, like when you spawn a WebAssembly, um, they're called instances, WebAssembly instances. It runs inside of the same VM, like the same V8 isolate is what they're called. But it does not have, it, it's like a completely fresh sandbox, sort of, in the sense that I told you that between a runtime and like an engine essentially implements no I.O. calls, right? And a runtime does, like a runtime pokes holes into the, 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 the engine. WebAssembly by default works the same way that there is no holes poked into its sandbox. So you have to explicitly poke some holes uh, if you want to do HTTP calls, for example. When, when you create the WebAssembly instance, it gives you, or you can give it something called imports, uh, which are essentially JavaScript function bindings which you can call from within the WebAssembly. And you can use those function bindings to do anything you can from JavaScript. You just have to pass them through explicitly. And yeah, depending on how you write your WebAssembly, like if you write it in Rust, for example, the tooling is very nice and you can just call 
some JavaScript code from your Rust, and then the build system will automatically make sure that the right function bindings are passed through with the right names, and like you don't have to deal with anything. And if you're writing Go, it's slightly more complicated. And if you're writing like raw WebAssembly, like like the WebAssembly text format and compiling that to a binary, then like you have to do everything yourself, right? It's it's sort of the difference between writing C and writing JavaScript. Like, yeah, what level of abstraction do you want? It's definitely possible, though. And as for limitations, it, the same limitations as as exist in browsers apply. Like the WebAssembly support in Dino is equivalent to the WebAssembly support in Chrome. So you can do uh, many things like multi-threading and, and stuff like that already, but especially around shared mutable memory um, and having access to that memory from JavaScript, that's something which is a real difficulty with WebAssembly right now. Yeah, growing WebAssembly memory is also rather difficult right now there's there's a there's a couple inherent limitations right now with WebAssembly itself um but those those will be worked out over time and and dino is like very up to date with the version of of the standard it, it implements um through v8 like we're we're up to date with chrome beta essentially all the time so um yeah any anything you see in 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 chrome beta is going to be in dino already so you talked a little bit about this before the Dino team, they have their own hosting platform mm -hmm. called Dino Deploy. So I wonder if you could explain what that is. Yeah. So Dino has this really nice this really nice concept of permissions, which allow you to sorry, I'm gonna start somewhere slightly slightly unrelated. Maybe it sounds like it's unrelated, but you'll see in a second it's not unrelated. Um, Dino has this really nice permission system which allows you to sandbox Dino programs to only allow them to do certain operations. For example, in Dino, by default, if you try to open a file, it'll air out and say, you don't have read permissions to read this file. And then what you do is you specify dash dash allow read, and maybe you have to give it, you can either specify allow read, and then it'll grant read access to the entire file system, or you can explicitly specify files or folders or any number of things. Same goes for write permissions, same goes for network permissions, um, same goes for running sub-processes, all these kind of things. And by limiting your permissions just a little bit like for example by just disabling sub processes and foreign function interface but allowing everything else allowing reads and allowing network access and all that kind of stuff we can run dino programs in a way that is significantly more cost effective to you as the end user than and, and like we can cold start them much faster than like you may be able to with a with a more conventional container-based uh, system so what, what do you what Dino Deploy is, is a way to run JavaScript or Dino code on our data centers all across the world with very little latency. Like you can write some JavaScript code, which execute, which serves HTTP requests, deploy that to our platform, and then we'll make sure to spin that code up all across the world and have your users be able to access it through some URL or, or, or some um, custom domain or something like that. And this is something this is very similar to Cloudflare workers, for example. Um, and it's like Netlify Edge Functions is built on top of Dino Deploy. Like Netlify Edge Functions is implemented on top of Dino Deploy um, through our sub-hosting product. So, uh, yeah, essentially Dino Deploy is is um yeah, a cl cloud hosting service for JavaScript, um, which allows you to execute arbitrary JavaScript. And there's there's a couple like different directions we're going there. One is like more end user focused, where like you link your GitHub repository and um, like we'll we'll have a nice experience like you do with Netlify and Vercel, that where like your commits automatically get deployed and you get preview deployments and all that kind of thing. 
for your backend code though, rather than for your front-end websites. Although you could also write front-end websites in Dino, obviously. And the other direction is more like business focused, like you're writing a SaaS application and you want to allow the user to customize the checkout. Like you're writing a SaaS application that provides users with the ability to write their own online store. Um, and you want to give them some ability to customize the checkout experience in some way. So you give them a little like text editor that they can type some JavaScript into. And then when, when your SaaS application needs to hit this code path, it sends a request to us with the code. We'll execute that code for you in a secure way, in a secure sandbox. You can like tell us you, this code only has access to like my API server and no other networks to like prevent data exfiltration, for example. And then you, do, you can have all this like super customizable code in, inside of your, your SaaS application without having to deal with any of the operational complexities of scaling arbitrary code execution or, or even just doing arbitrary code execution, right? Like it's, this is a very difficult problem and give it to someone else and we deal with it and you just get the benefits. Yeah, that's Dino Deploy. And it's built by the same team that builds the Dino CLI. So um, all, the, all of your favorite like Dino CLI or, or, or Dino APIs are available in there. It's just as web standard as Dino, like you have Fetch available, you have Blob available, you have Web Crypto available, that kind of thing. Yeah. So when someone ships you their their code and you run it, you mentioned that the the cold start time is very low. Mm-hmm. Um, how how is the code being run? Are people getting their own process? Uh, it sounds like it's not uh, using containers. I wonder if you could explain a little bit about how that works. Yeah, yeah, I can I can give a high level overview of how it works. So, the way it works is that we essentially have a pool of of Dino processes ready. Well, it's not quite Dino process. It's not the same Dino CLI that you download. It's like a modified version of the Dino CLI based on the same infrastructure that we have spun up across all of our different regions across the world, uh, across all of our different data centers. And then when we get a request, we'll route that request. Um, the first time we get a request for that that we call them deployments that like code, right? We'll take one of these idle Dino processes and we'll assign that code to run in that process. And then that process can go serve the requests. And these process, they're, they're, they're isolated and they're, it's essentially a V8 isolate. Um, and it's a very, very slim, it's like, it's a much, much, much slimmer version of the Dino CLI essentially, uh, which the only thing it can do is JavaScript execution. And like, it can't even execute TypeScript, for example, like TypeScript is we pre-process it up front to make the, the cold start faster. And then what we do is, if you don't get a request for some amount of time, we'll uh, spin down that, um, that isolate and uh, we'll spin up a new idle one in its place. And then um, if you get another request, I don't know, an hour later for that same deployment, we'll assign it to a new isolate and yeah, that's a cold start, right? Uh, if you have an isolate which receives, or a, a deployment rather, which receives a bunch of traffic, like let's say you receive 100 requests per second, we can send a bunch of that traffic to the same isolate. Um, and we'll make sure that if that one isolate isn't able to handle that load, we'll spin it out over multiple isolates and we'll, we'll sort of load balance for you. Um, and we'll make sure to always send to the to the point of presence that's closest to to the user making the request so they get very minimal latency. And like we we've these like layers of load balancing in place and 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 um I'm glossing over a bunch of like security related things here about how these these processes are actually isolated and how we monitor to ensure that you don't break out of these processes and for example, Dino deploy does it looks like you have a file system because you can read files from the file system, but in reality, Dino deploy does not have a file system like the file system is a 
global virtual file system, which is, is uh, yeah, implemented completely differently than it is in Dino CLI. But as an end user, you don't have to care about that because the only thing you care about is that it has the exact same API as the Dino CLI and you can run your code locally. And if it works there, it's also going to work on deploy. Yeah, so that's 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 kind of a high level of Dino deploy. If if any of this sounds interesting to anyone, by the way, uh, we're like very actively hiring on on Dino deploy. I happen to be the the tech lead for for a Dino deploy product, so I'm I'm always looking for engineers to to join our ranks and and build cool distributed systems. Dino.com/slash/jobs for people who aren't familiar with V8 isolates. Are these each run in their own processes, or do you have a single process and that has a whole bunch of isolates mm -hmm. inside it? In, in the general case, you can say that we run uh, one isolate per process, but there's many asterisks on that um, because it's, it's very complicated. I'll just say it's very complicated. Uh, in, in the general case, though, it's, it's one isolate per process. Yeah. And then you touched a little bit on the permissions system like you gave the example of somebody could have a website where they let their users give them code to execute how does it look in terms of specifying what permissions people have like is that mm -hmm. a configuration file or those flags you pass in what what does that look like yeah so so that product is called subhosting it's um slightly different from our end user platform um it's essentially a service that allows you to like you email us we'll, we'll send you a um We'll onboard you, and then what you can do is you can send HTTP requests to a certain endpoint with a authentication token and a reference to some code to execute. And then what we'll do is we'll, um, when we receive that HTTP request, we'll fetch the code, spin up an isolate, execute the code, execute the code. We serve the request, return you the response, um, and then we'll pipe logs to you and, and stuff like that. And the and, and part of that is also when we when we pull the um, the the code for to spin up the isolate that code doesn't just include the code that we're executing but also includes things like permissions and and various other we call this isolate configuration um you can, you can you can this is all public we have public docs for this at dino.com slash subhosting i think yes dino.com slash subhosting and is that built on top of something that's a part of the public dino project the open source part or is this specific to this subhosting product um, so the underlying end or underlying runtime that executes the code here, like all of the code execution is performed by code, which is execute, which is public. Like all our, our, yeah, it uses the Dino CLI, just strips out a bunch of stuff it doesn't need. The orchestration code is not public. The orchestration code is proprietary. And yeah, if you have use cases that where you would like to run this orchestration code on your own infrastructure and yeah, you have interesting use cases, please email us. We would love to hear from you. Separate from the, the orchestration, if it's more of an example of, let's say I deploy a Dino application and in the case that someone was able to get some like malicious code or URLs into my application, could I tell Dino I only want this application to be able to call out to these URLs for just as an example? Yes, so it's it's slightly more complicated because you can't actually tell it that it can only call out to specific URLs, but you can tell it to call out only to specific domains or IP addresses, which sort of the same thing, but uh, just slightly different layer of abstraction. Yeah, you can do that. 
the allow net flag uh, allows you to specify a set of domains to allow requests to those domains. Yes. <laughs> I see. So on the user facing open source part, there are configuration flags where you could say, I want this application to be able to access these domains or I don't want it to be able to use IO or whatever kind yeah, of permissions exactly. they're, they're flags. Yeah. And, and on, on sub hosting, this is done via the isolate configuration, which is like a JSON blob and yeah, like the, there's it's, but ultimately it's all, it's all sort of the same concept, just slightly different interfaces because like, it, like the, the sub hosting one needs to be a programmatic interface instead of a, something you type as an end user, right? One of the things you mentioned about Dino Deploy is it's centered around deploying your application code to a bunch of different locations. And you also mentioned the, the cold start times are very low. Could you kind of give the case for wanting your application code at a bunch of different sites? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, 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 the main benefit of this is that when your user makes a request to your application, um, you don't have to round trip back to um, wherever centrally hosted your application would otherwise be. Like if you are a, a startup, even if you're just in the US, for example, it's nice to have points of presence not just on one of the US coasts, but on both of the US coasts, because that means that your round trip time is not going to be 100 milliseconds, but it's going to be 20 milliseconds. This sort of relies on the... like. This doesn't. There's obviously always the problem here that if your database lives in only one of the two coasts, you still need to do the round trip. And there's solutions to this, which is one caching. Uh, that's the 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 obvious sort of boring solution. Um, and then there's the solution of using databases which are built exactly for this. For example, CockroachDB is a database which is Postgres compatible, but it's really built for um, global distribution and built for being able to shard data across regions and have different um, primary regions for different uh, shards of your, of, your, of your tables. Which means, for example, you could have the, your users on the East Coast, their data could live on a database in the East Coast, and your users on the West Coast, their data could live on a database in the West Coast. And your like, admin panel needs to show all of them as an aggregate view over both coasts, right? Like this is something which which something like CockroachDB can do, and it can be a really great um, gr great thing here. And we acknowledge that this is not something which is very easy to do right now. And Dino tries to make everything very easy. So you can imagine that we're, this is something we're working on, and we're working on on database solutions. And actually, I should more generally say persistent solutions that allow you to persist data in a way that makes sense for a, a, an edge system like this, um, where the data is persisted close to users that need it, um, and data is cached around the world, and you still have sort of semantics which, which are consistent with the semantics that you have when you're locally developing your application. Like you don't want, for example, your local application development, you don't want there to be like strong consistency there, but then in production you have eventual consistency where suddenly, I don't know, all of your code breaks because you didn't your US West region didn't pick up the changes from US East because it's eventually consistent, right? I mean, this is a problem that we see with a lot of the existing solutions here, like specifically Cloudflare KV, for example. Cloudflare KV is um, a single primary is a system with with single primary um, write regions, 
where there's just a bunch of caching going on and this leads to eventual consistency, which can be very confusing for, for end user developers, um, especially because if you're using this locally, the local emulator does not emulate the eventual consistency, right? So this, this, this can become very confusing very quickly. And so anything that we build in, in this persistence field, for example, we take very, we very seriously um, weigh these trade-offs and make sure that if there's something that's eventually consistent, it's very clear and it works the same way, the same eventually consistent way in the CLI. So for someone, let's say they haven't made that jump yet to use a cockroach, they, they just have their, their database instance in AWS <laughs> East or whatever. Does having the code at the edge where it all ends up needing to go to East, is that better than having the code be located next to the database? Yeah, yeah, it 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 totally does. Um, there's there's def there's different um, there, there's trade offs here, right? Obviously, like if you have a a if you have an admin panel, for example, or a, a like user dashboard, which is very very reliant on data from your database, and for every single request needs to fetch fresh data from the database, then maybe the trade off isn't worth it. But most applications are not like that. Most applications are, for example, you have a landing page, and that landing page needs to do A/B tests. And those A-B tests are based on some heuristic that you can fetch from the database every five seconds. That's fine. Like, it doesn't need to be perfect, right? So you, you have caching in place, which, um, like, by doing this caching locally to the user um, and, and still being able to programmatically control this, like, based on, I don't know, the user's user agent or the IP address of the user or the region of the user or the past browsing history of that user through... As, as measured by their cookies or whatever else, right? Being able to do these highly user-customized actions very close to the user means that like latency is, is like, this is a much better user experience than if you have to do the round trip, especially if you're a, a startup or, or, or a um, service which is globally distributed and, and serves not just users in the US or the EU, but like all across the world. And when you talk about caching in the context of, Dino deploy, is there a cache native to the system or are you expecting someone to have a, a Redis or a memcache, that sort of thing? Yeah, so Dino deploy actually has, or there's a built, there's a, there's a web cache API, um, which is also the web cache API that's used by service workers and, and others. And Cloudflare also implements this cache API. Um, and this is something that's implemented in Dino CLI and it's going to be coming to Dino deploy this quarter, which is that's the native way to do caching and otherwise you can also use Redis. You can use services like Upstash or uh, even like primitive in-memory caches where it's just an LRU that's in memory, like a, like a JavaScript data structure, right? Or even just a JavaScript map or a JavaScript object with a, with a time on it. And you automatically, and like every time you read from it and the time is above some certain threshold, you delete the cache and go fetch it again, right? Like this is, there's many things that you could consider a cache that are not like Redis or, 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 or like the web cache API. So there's, there's ways to do that. And there's also a bunch of like modules on in the standard library or not in the standard library, sorry, in the, in the third party module registry and also on NPM that you can use to, to implement different cache behaviors. And when you give the example of a in-memory cache, when you're running in Dino deploy, you're running in these isolates, which mm -hmm. presumably can be shut down at any time. 
So what kind of guarantees do users have that whatever they put into memory will still be there? None. Like the, it's, it's a cache, right? The cache can be evicted at any time. Like your isolate can be restarted at any time. It can be shut down. You could be moved to a different region. The data center could go, for, go down for maintenance. Like this is something your application has to be built in, in a way that it is tolerant to, to restarts, essentially. But because it's a cache, that's fine. Because if the cache expires or, or, or the cache is cleared through some external means, the worst thing that happens is that you have a cold request again, right? And if you're serving like 100 requests a second, I can essentially guarantee to you that not every single request will invoke a cold start. Like, I can guarantee to you that probably less than 0.1% of requests will, will cause a cold start. This is not like SLA anywhere um, because it's like totally up to, to however the, the system decides to scale you. But yeah, like it's, it, it would be very wasteful for us, for example, to spin up a new isolate for every request. So we don't, we reuse isolates wherever possible. Yeah. It's like, it's in our best interest to not cold start you um, because it's expensive for us to do all the CPU work to, to cold start an isolate, right? And typically with applications, people will put a, a CDN in front and they'll mm -hmm. use things like cache control headers to be able to serve straight from the CDN. Is that a supported use case with Dino deploy or are there any things that anything that people should be aware of when they're doing that sort of thing? Yeah, so you can do that. Um, like you could put a cache in front of Dino deploy, but in most cases it's really not necessary um, because the main reasons people use CDNs is is essentially to like do this global distribution problem, right? Like you you want to be able to cache close to users, but if your end application is already executing close to users, the cost of a of a of serving something like serving a request from a JavaScript cache is like marginal. It's so low. There's there's like no nearly no CPU time involved here. It's it's network bandwidth. That's the that's the limiting factor, and that's the limiting factor for all CDNs. Uh, so so whether you're serving on Dino Deploy or you have a a separate CDN that you put in front of it, hmm, not really that big of a difference. Like you can do it, but I don't know. Dino.com doesn't, or, or and Dino.land, like they don't have a CDN in front of them. They're running bare on on Dino Deploy, and yeah, it's fine. So for even for things like images, for example, something that somebody might store in object storage and put a CDN in front. Mm -hmm. um, are you suggesting that people could put it on Dino Deploy directly, or just kind of curious what your thoughts are there? Yeah, uh, like if you have a blog and your profile image is is part of your blog, right? And you can put that in your static file folder and serve that directly from your Dino Deploy application. Like that's totally cool. Uh, you should do that because that's obvious and that's the obvious way to do things. If you're specifically building like a image serving CDN, go reach out to us because we'd love to work with you. But also... Um, like there's probably different constraints that you have. Um, like you probably very, very, very much care about network bandwidth costs um, because that is like your one number one primary cost factor. So yeah, it's just what's the trade-off? What, what, what trade-offs are you willing to make? Like does some other provider give you a lower network bandwidth cost? I would argue that if you're building an, like an image CDN, then you'd probably... Like even if you have to write your application code in Haskell or in whatever, it's probably worth it if you can get like a cent cheaper gigabyte transfer fees. 
just because that is like 100% of your, of your costs um, is, is network bandwidth. So it's really a trade-off based on what, what you're trying to build. And if I understand correctly, Dino Deploy, it's centered around applications that take HTTP requests. So it could be a website, it could be an API, that sort of thing. And sometimes when people build applications, they have other things surrounding them. They'll, they'll need scheduled jobs. They may need some form of message queue, things like mm-hmm. that. Things that don't necessarily fit into what Dino Deploy currently hosts. And so I wonder for things like that, what you recommend people would do while working with Dino Deploy? Yeah, great question. Unfortunately, I can't tell you too much about that without like spoiling everything. <laughs> but <laughs> what I'm going to say is you should keep your eyes peeled on our blog over the next two or three months here. I consider message queues and like especially message queues, they are a persistence feature. And we are currently working on persistence features. So yeah, that's all I'm going to say. But uh, you can expect Dino Deploy to do things other than um, just HTTP requests in the not so far future. And like on jobs and stuff like that also uh, at some point, yeah. All right, we'll look look out for that. (laughs) (laughs) I guess as we wrap up, maybe you could give some examples of who's using Dino and and what types of projects do you think are are ideal for Dino? Yeah, uh, Dino or Dino deploy like Dino like Dino as in all of Dino or Dino deploy specifically. I, I mean, I guess either <laughs> either okay. way, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, let's let's do it. So, one really cool use case for example for Dino is Slack. Uh, Slack has this app platform that they're building. Um, which allows you to execute arbitrary JavaScript from within inside of Slack in response to like slash commands and like actions. I don't know if you've ever seen like those little buttons you can have in messages. If you press one of those buttons, like that can execute some Dino code. And Slack has built like this entire platform around that. And it makes use of Dino's like security features and, and built in tooling and, and all that kind of thing. Um, and that's really cool. And Netlify has built edge functions like which is like a really, really awesome primitive they have for, for being able to customize outgoing requests or even come up with completely new requests on the spot um, as part of their CDN layer, uh, also built on top of Dino. And GitHub has built like this platform called Flat, which allows you to like sort of um, on cron schedules pull data um, into Git repositories and, and process that and, and post-process that and, and, and do do things with that and it's integrated with GitHub Actions and all kind of thing. It's kind of cool. Superbase also has some edge has like an edge functions product that's built on top of Dino. I'm just thinking about other like those are those are the obvious ones that are on the homepage. There's I, I know for example there's a image CDN actually that's serves images with Dino like four hundred million of them a day, kind of related to what we were talking about. Actually I don't know if it's still four hundred million. I think it's more. Um, the last data I got from them was like maybe eight months ago. So probably more at this point. Um, yeah, a, b- a bunch of cool, cool, cool things like that. Um, we have like a, a really active discord channel and there's always people showcasing what kind of stuff they built in there that we have a showcase channel. I think that's like, if, if you're really interested in like what people are, what cool things people are building with, you know, that's like, that's a great place to, to look. I think actually we maybe also have a showcase. We have dino.land slash showcase. I don't remember. Show. Case. Oh yeah, we do. Dino.com slash showcase. 
which is a, a page of like a bunch of yeah projects built with Dino or 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 products using Dino or um, other things like that. Cool. If people want to learn more about Dino or see what you're up to, where should they head? Yeah. Uh, if you want to learn more about Dino CLI, head to dino.land. If you want to learn more about Dino Deploy, head to dino.com slash deploy. Um, if you want to chat to me, uh, you can hit me up on my website, lcast.dev. If you want to chat about Dino, you can go to discord.gg slash Dino. Yeah. And if you're interested in any of this and thought that maybe you have something to contribute here, you can either become an open source contributor on our open source projects or this is really something you want to work on and you like distributed systems or systems engineering or fast performance, head to dinner.com slash jobs and send in your resume. We're, we're very actively hiring and be super excited to, to work with you. All right, Luca. Well, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Radio. Thank you so much for having me.